Well, hello everybody and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. Today I have something a little bit different for you. It is 25 past 8, 27 minutes past 8 on the morning of Saturday, August the 5th. I'm just about to go downstairs and enjoy some breakfast with 70 or 80 something men of the church here at All Saints, at least that's how many were signed up 24 hours ago. There may be a few more now, uh, last minute uh, signups. Uh, today is the day of our third men's discipleship breakfast of the year. And what I want to do today is to bring you the recording of what I say to get the discussion started uh, during that discipleship breakfast. It may be possible also to include some of the discussion afterwards, some of the q and I'm going to have Pastor Shaw with me uh, also contributing to that discussion. We'll see how the recording shapes up and if that's worth putting on here. If it's uh, audible and valuable, then we'll put it on. I'm sure it'll be valuable. It's just whether it's uh, whether it comes through with enough clarity. But anyway, uh, quick heads up about what we're going to be talking about. Uh, this year in the Men's Discipleship Breakfast, we've been focusing on various aspects of our work, uh, including in the first session what it means to pursue our work, our vocations, so that we come to love and enjoy them. And then in the second Men's Discipleship Breakfast, we started to think about uh, the uh, issue of laziness. The, we looked at the sluggard from the book of Proverbs and tried to uh, work through and formulate some practical strategies for dealing with the temptation to back away from our responsibilities. Well, in this session, we're looking at the issue of work from a slightly different angle by looking at one of the very grave temptations that can arise if we do back away from our work, become idle and so on. We're looking at the subject of work, idleness and sexual temptation. It turns out that in scriptural terms, these three uh, themes are quite closely linked, particularly the, link, the, the two themes of idleness, that is to say, having time on our hands and then the issue of sexual temptation, idleness, well, what's the saying? Uh, idle hands make the devil's work or uh, idle hands do the devil's work. You've heard variations of that proverb. It turns out to be true and it is found to be true by none other than the great King David in 2 Samuel 11 when in the spring of the year when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants and all Israel out to battle but he remained in Jerusalem. And if you know that chapter, you know what happened next. So we're going to be thinking about uh, what exactly happened? It turns out that this chapter, it's a really appalling uh, chapter, couple of chapters actually, because um, the narrative continues into chapter 12, provides not just uh, an anatomy of David's uh, adulterous downfall in his um, relationship with Uriah, uh, with um, the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, and the murderous cover-up that he tries to orchestrate, but it also gives us some uh, coordinates for trying to figure out how such a great man as David could have fallen in this way. Because believe you me, if King David uh, could fall in such a dramatic way and sin so grievously, we ought to be very careful not to assume that, well, it couldn't happen to any one of us. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. I'm going to leave you with the rest of the recording. Um, I'm tempted to say I hope you enjoy it, but I kind of hope you don't, but I hope it's sobering. I hope it gives you some uh, thoughts for yourself, how you might um, uh, learn from the mistakes of King David, because as I've said on many occasions before, it's far better to learn from other people's mistakes than to go right ahead and make them ourselves. So with that, I'll sign off and leave you with the rest of this morning's Men's Discipleship Breakfast on work, idleness, 
and Sexual Temptation. Bye for now. All right, well, good morning. Welcome, everybody. I won't ask you to respond to that because your mouths are full of burritos. On which note, thank you, Luke. Um, we have some uh, votes of thanks for a bunch of people who got up even earlier than the rest of us did. Uh, Mr. Robinson, Luke Robinson, Beth Robinson, who came and made sure everything was going to be edible and non-toxic and then disappeared. <laughs> Calvin Rybelin and uh, Drew Trammell. Thank you. Have I missed anybody out, Mr. Robinson, of the people who came? Yeah. There were lots of people who came. But those guys, thank you guys for showing up um, super early and uh, cooking this breakfast. In addition, I must mention uh, Nan Anderson's attempt to introduce an element of genuine culinary culture to the men's discipleship <laughs> breakfast. This is the first time I've been to a men's discipleship breakfast at which spinach puffs have been served. Mrs. Anderson, thank you very much. They're good, weren't they? They were like, thank you. So, so yeah, um, Taylor, please give her a big hug from all of us. You're the best man for that job, we think. And, um, uh, yeah, um, so thank you to those guys. Big round of applause, please. Uh, at this stage, you should all have uh, as much coffee as you need. You should have a Bible. I hope you've got one of these handouts that says on it, Work, Idleness, and Sexual Temptation. That being the topic for this morning's time together. Just so you know what we're going to do, I'm going to talk for a few minutes and then leave some time for us to discuss and, and chat in smaller groups and then uh, perhaps back together again. Uh, as ever, we will not exhaust the subject we're uh, looking at. We never do. In one sense, that generates sort of frustration. Why couldn't we spend longer? Well, you can. And actually, the longer really ought to end up with the final box on this page, almost the whole of the second half of this page in, in the handout in front of you. What practical strategies could we put in place to help ourselves resist similar temptations? Gentlemen, really, um, I hope we get to the point where you perhaps with the men who providentially or sat near or with somebody else whom you know a little bit better, perhaps your father, perhaps uh, your brother, whoever, uh, you have some kind of resolution to go and add something to the armory, which I trust you already have in place to some degree to guard yourself against the kind of ruinous chaos that David uh, jumped headlong into in this chapter. With that, let me pray and then we will begin. Merciful Father, thank you for these men and for our fellowship in Christ together. We thank you for your goodness in making us part of a church community where we are encouraged, challenged, supported, where we have friends, brothers in, and sisters in Christ, and particularly here, these brothers in Christ who are rooting for us and praying for us and here to help us, and we here to help them as we strive to grow together into a greater Christ-likeness. And in truth, Father, we tackle here... Um, something that surrounds us all and could destroy any one of us along with our families, the subject of sexual temptation. Please would you give us wisdom as we're thinking about how to handle this well, make this time really fruitful, preserve our marriages, save our lives, we pray, through things that we discover and talk about this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So just to set this... Pardon me. Oops. 
That's not going any higher. I'll leave it where it is. Just to set this in the context of what we have been talking about for the last couple of sessions, we've been talking about work in general, and uh, the first men's discipleship session of this year, loving your work. I argued that you don't find your passion and then go and try and find a job in it. You find a job that you can work hard at, that's challenging, that you can give 100% of your energy to, and you'll find your love for what God has given you to do in that labor. Then we look secondly at that issue of with 100% of your effort by looking in our second men's discipleship session this year at the sluggard in the book of Proverbs. And the aim there was to generate some practical strategies for um, helping us to focus on our work and to do our jobs well and not to be distracted by the myriad other things that could draw us away from those responsibilities. Today we're taking a slightly different angle, which is nonetheless quite closely related, because it turns out that if you're distracted from your work and become idle, it might not just be that your productivity in the workplace decreases. Bad things happen when men become idle. And one of the worst things that can happen happened to one of the greatest of men, King David, King David of Israel, who in first, uh, 2 Samuel 11 found himself idle with ruinous consequences. I'm not going to read the whole of this uh, two chapters. I trust that you know the narrative reasonably well. I'll read the first five verses, and then as necessary, I'll jump into little bits of the remaining two chapters. But if you've got your Bible, 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle... David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. You see, David is idle. We'll come back to that in a minute or two. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof of uh, a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. We'll stop there just for a moment. Uh, We're going to walk through those verses in a little bit of detail, Um, but let me just uh, highlight the reason for talking about this subject. Um, Firstly, obviously, uh, the issue of sexual temptation isn't going away, so um, our attention to fighting it needs to be constant. It's valuable in and of itself. Uh, And it's related, secondly, to the goal of our work, which is the subject for this year's men's discipleship breakfasts, because it's quite hard to provide for your family, which is obviously a major goal of your work, if your wife has just divorced you, and quite justly so, because you've gone and had an affair or you've been viewing pornography. And so what a waste of time it would be to give our attention to the disciplines of work and to neglect this. And then, of course, the third aspect of the rationale is what you find here, that um, A lack of engagement in our work provides fertile soil for the growth of this kind of temptation. 
And that's what we see in uh, chapter 11, verse 1. So just look down with me if you've got your Bibles. And what you'll see on the handout, by the way, there are basically two boxes, and you might even have a pen or two lying around on the table near you. I invite you to make some notes as we're going through in the, the first box, which has got some questions, which I'm going to try and give you some grist for the mill to answer. And then uh, in our discussion time, we'll look at the second box about practical strategies. But look at verse 1 with me. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, well, that's just worth thinking about for a second. I mean, that's, that's what pagan kings do. Kings go out to battle in the spring of the year. It's, it's slightly odd, isn't it? Pastor Shaw and I were talking about this. Oh, it's a spring. Let's go and beat somebody up. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a pagan instinct. It's actually what Sam, uh, Samuel, sorry, not Samson, Samuel warned the people of Israel about way back in 1 Samuel 8 when they asked for a king. He said, well, if you want a king like the other nations, you'll get a king like the other nations. And so you might at this point be thinking, oh my goodness, David is going to be just like all the other kings going out to fight his battles. He's already done the hard work of uh, chapters 8 through 10 and defeated the actual enemies. He's got a degree of peace within the land. There's a kind of conclusion um, at the end of chapter 10. And you might be thinking, oh my goodness, wouldn't it be terrible if David were just to become a king like the other kings of the nations going out and doing what other kings do? Scarcely can you have imagined that he'd be doing something else that the other kings do. You thought it would be bad enough that you'd have a king who'd tax you and go out to fight for fun. But what about if you had a king who did this? Then you'd really have a king like the other nations. And wouldn't it be a horrific indictment on the church if we were to become like the nations at this point? So David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. In other words, David remained idle. David remained doing nothing while the soldiers were out. It's like the worst of both worlds, isn't it? He sent his men out to fight just like all the other kings fight, but he's just hanging out doing nothing. And empty acres of time spread out before him started to become occupied in all the worst kinds of ways. So verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And it's Can you hear the irony in the narrator's voice? It just happened late one afternoon as David's walking around on the roof of his house. The roof of his house would have been like a a roofed garden. It would have been a place that David knew. He'd been there before. It wasn't like, I'm just going to go up onto the roof and see if I can fix the guttering. That's not what he's doing. And it didn't just happen. This is the point that we're supposed to pick up from the, the heavy irony that's set before us at the start of verse 2. It didn't just happen. Like, he knows that if he goes up on the roof, there's a reasonable chance he'll see into his neighbour Uriah's backyard, where the bathtub is. It's like he cannot believe that after having been king in Jerusalem for a number of years at this point, he doesn't know what he can see from his balcony. He knows perfectly well what he can see, and he's placed himself in a position where he knows he's likely to be tempted. It's interesting. Um, some of you, I know, use the, um, uh, some kind of accountability software on your phones and your computer, which, which will alert a friend or a pastor or your spouse or your wife if, if you end up on a website where you shouldn't end up. 
And I've been uh, helping a bunch of guys out with that, and also my own family. We all have the same software. I'll talk about that in a few minutes' time. But, but um, uh, one of the things it says in the guidance for accountability partners is, do be aware that sometimes people stumble upon inappropriate material, right? Sometimes it just ha- you know, you're just kind of scrolling through Facebook, like, why would you? But let's suppose you were for professional reasons or something, right? And it just happened that there were, oh, my goodness, there's something. But then what it says is you've got to be a little bit careful. You've got to be a bit shrewd because sometimes people, even though they've sought accountability, they will just happen a bit too often. Can you recognize that the way that temptation would work? You're putting yourselves in a position where you kind of know what's going to happen, but you've got plausible deniability because you kind of could have constructed a rationale for why you needed to be there anyway. I mean, it's the roof of my house. What am I supposed to do? I mean, I've got to check the guttering. Yeah, right. Sure you have. That he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Well, of course she is. I mean, um, maybe this is a a moment just to talk to the the younger men here for a second. Um, There are forms of... uh, sinful sexual temptation that uh, many of you or most of you younger lads have not started to feel internally in quite the same way as some of the older men, your fathers and older brothers here have. Um, but it is worthwhile just saying one thing specifically to you guys. Okay? And if, if this is the only thing you came away with from today, this would be really valuable. Okay? Um, notice what David did. He saw her. Guys, in the next few years, you're going to see lots of beautiful young ladies. You're going to get an opportunity to look at lots of beautiful young ladies. Let me encourage you. Look them in the eye. And don't look anywhere else. Seriously, you could save yourself a lot of pain. And you could certainly save others a lot of pain. If you just always looked her in the eye. Of course she's beautiful. Maybe the time will come when you're married. But not yet. Just look her in the eye. He saw that she was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. I mean, I'm just inquiring. He has seven wives or consorts already, by the way. Chapter 3, verse 2, there are six listed there. Then there's Michal, the daughter of Saul. And one of them said, like a kind of warning shot across his bows, like, is this not Bathsheba? Like, (laughs) you know who it is, David. You know perfectly well who it is. Don't you know who your neighbors are? But he gets worse. The daughter of Eliam. Now, Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. He's one of his closest trusted advisors. Ahithophel is probably a bit older than David. Eliab, maybe about his age, maybe a few years either side. David's probably late 40s at this point, judging by the timeline. So David's 40-something, Ahithophel is 60-something, Eliam is 40-something. Bathsheba's his daughter, what, 20? Old enough to be married. To one of his closest friends. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, who's Uriah the Hittite? Uriah is one of the mighty men. 
Uriah is one of the, the bodyguard, the crack troops, the specialist soldiers who have sworn to defend the life of the king. And again, I was talking about this with Pastor Shaw yesterday, that they're listed towards the end of the book in um, chapter 33. You might like to just turn to it just very briefly. And it lists the mighty men. It lists some of the deeds that some of them did in defense of King David, like Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, who killed a lion on a... Sorry, did I say 23? Thank you, Ben. My apologies. Yeah. <laughs> if you're looking for 2 Samuel 33, you'll be looking for a long time. 23. Thank you, Ben. Um, killed a lion on a snowy day. Go figure that one out. We'll have a men's Bible study on that sometime. Anyway. And at the end of the list, you've got this long list of all the men that have defended David. Right at the end, verse 39. Uriah the Hittite. Remember him, David? Here's a man who would have given his life to defend you. The husband of the man, of the woman who is having a bath in private and the, one of the soldiers who's away fighting your battles for her. So David sent messengers and took her. Can you just see that? Like verse 4, just look at that for a second. It is so laconic and matter-of-fact. It's like um, David has just been told everything that he needed to know, if he didn't know it already. It's like, is, have you not learned enough? Like, she's that young woman. It's the granddaughter of one of your, your advisors. It's the wife of the guy who's defending you out in the battlefield. So he sent and took her. Because, so, he said, like, it's the most natural thing in the world. Like, I don't care. And it's, it's fascinating I wonder if what we have here is a glimpse of the, the um, moral... Uh, it's a seared conscience, isn't it? Um, I can't think of the, the, the better way of putting it. You, 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 get to a, you can get to a point where you just don't care. And it was a beautiful woman, so he sent and took her. And nothing that his staff or servants could have said would have stopped him and did stop him. Um, those of you who have um, uh, been paying attention or who know Hebrew, uh, verse 2, he saw, verse 2 again, that the woman was literally good, saw, good, verse 4, so he took, saw, good, took. You've seen that before, haven't you? Where have you seen that before? Pop quiz time. Genesis 3, well done. Um, when the woman saw that the fruit was good, etc., she took, saw good, took, which itself is a sinful parody of what God does. He sees that it's good, and then he took the man and put him in the garden to, to take care of it. So what the woman is doing in Genesis 3 is a twisted perversion of God's good act of creation. God made the world good. The woman is upturning the goodness of the world. What's David doing here? The king of Israel is upturning the goodness of the world in which he's been placed. He's practically back in the garden. He lives right down the street from the temple. So he took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And again, you wonder whether that's just inserted there in a way that reminds us that Men who are about to do something terrible can be awfully fastidious about straining out gnats before they swallow camels. You know, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. 
and the woman, notice, the woman, not Bathsheba anymore, because what has she become? From David's perspective, she has become an object of uh, sexual gratification. And it doesn't matter what David thinks she's become at this point, or what David would tell you she'd become. It's really interesting, if you look at verses 1 to 5, you notice what's not here. I mean, look, literally, uh, who's that? Oh, isn't that Bathsheba? So he said, okay, bring her here, and he took her and lay with her and then sent her away. I mean, what's missing is all the conversation. You can't believe that they didn't talk to each other, surely. And you can imagine the kinds of things that David did. David is like a mature man in his late 40s. She's a younger woman. All the power imbalances are tilted that way. Whatever you might think about, about Bathsheba's... So some people have been inclined to suggest that perhaps she was a little careless and so on and so forth. The text doesn't give us any reason to lay the blame anywhere other than upon David. And so he invites her in and says, Hello. Oh, you're looking lovely. I mean, you've done your hair different. That's, that's really nice. Hey, um, how's, how's your eye? You, is he doing all right? Oh, oh, great, lovely. Yeah, he's a good man. Um, hey, listen, come and have a seat. I was, I was just going to have a glass of wine. I mean, it's a little early, for, you know. Do you want to join me? Um, tell you what, come, come and sit here. And you can imagine that, you know, he's a, David is an intelligent man, a, a thoughtful man, a, a man of, maybe he got his harp out. I've, I've written a new poem. I've written a new song. Do you mind if I sing it to you? And all of the stuff which, I don't know what happened, but something happened, which David himself would have loved to characterize as, you know, we've really got something. There's a spark between us. She's so so, so witty, she's so thoughtful. I love the way that, you know, the way she laughs at my jokes. (laughs) My other wife laughed at my jokes. And... Then he lay with her. Okay, well, all of that stuff is stripped out. It's as though whatever protestations David might make about how this was something special, this is something different, this wasn't just carnal. This was genuinely spiritual. You know, I, I sang her a psalm. You know, like one of those psalms in the late 40s. I haven't got to Psalm 51 yet. I hadn't written that one. I'm working on some ideas, though. All of that stuff is removed from the narrative because what we're to understand is that, yeah, David, none of your protestations of we've really got something special here are actually true or meaningful. Do I need to say they don't justify what you're doing? Of course they don't justify it, but they're not even real. They're in your imagination, and so they're not going in the narrative. What we'll see in the narrative is saw beautiful, took the woman. It's it's fascinating how one of the differences between adultery or fornication, so adultery, sex that breaks a marriage covenant that does exist, fornication, sex in the absence of a marriage covenant, how it depersonalizes, how how it undermines and takes away from who somebody really is on both sides. So Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, becomes the woman conceived and sent and told David, I'm pregnant, which is, from this point on, 
going to be pretty much the only thing that David cares about. Um, you'll know that in the rest of chapter 10, basically what he's trying to do is to cover up what he's done. So he, he sends and calls Uriah back from the front lines and says, yeah, you, you need a break. Go, and, go home and wash your feet. Feet in Hebrew is a euphemism for something else. And so it's a, it's a you know, go on, go home, wash your feet. And of course he sleeps outside on the doorstep because like, what, how would I dare to go in to my wife when all my fellow soldiers are out there defending you, David? I'm glad to be back in Jerusalem, but really I need to be on the front lines. And so then David gets him drunk. Verse 13, David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And he still wouldn't go in. Like, drunk Uriah has got greater self-control than King David. Drunk Busy, industrious, hard-working Uriah has got greater self-control than idle King David. And so he hatches this plan. Says, he sends a letter via Uriah back to the front lines to give to Joab. I mean, it's like, what on earth? To say, you know, put him in the hard part of the fighting, withdraw from him so that he's slain and dies. And actually what happens is that um, a bunch of people die. The fighting is so fierce that not only Uriah is killed, but a whole bunch of other people. And David's like, yeah, collateral damage is the way it goes. You know, sometimes you've just got to do what you've got to do. Um, and then at the end of the chapter, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indeed it did. Again, it's this laconic understatement, which then Nathan the prophet draws out in the next few verses. And let me just say a word or two about this, because there's just one further point that emerges from this. Um, Nathan uh, uh, comes to David, he's sent by the Lord, and um, he tells him this little parable, verse 1. There's two rich men in a certain city, one rich, one poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. You know, you've got seven wives and consorts, David. And he brought it up and grew up with him and he grew up with him and with his children. You've got to imagine that Uriah and Bathsheba went to school together, high school sweethearts. Loved each other from, well, you know, loved, they're 14, but they, you know, he was looking her in the eye because he's an honourable man, but the time came when they were able to get married. And he was always faithful to her. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup, echoes of Boaz and Ruth in Ruth chapter 2, eat the morsel, remember? Honourable man, Uriah is. He was like a daughter to him. Listen, my daughter, Ruth chapter 2, Boaz. Do you remember? This is a man who he's always loved and cared for this one woman, his wife. Then there came a traveller to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who'd come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who'd come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. In other words, you are the man who had it all. Like, just think through the history of Israel up to this point. Um, Is there anybody up to this point, who has enjoyed greater privilege among the people of God, greater standing socially, greater wealth, greater intimacy with God. David used to sit in the tent, the tent of David, that didn't have internal divisions in it. He used to sit before the Lord. This is a man whose prayer life you'd want to imitate. Is there anybody who's had greater honours bestowed upon him, greater success against the odds, 
a, a more glamorous rise to fame and stardom than King David. This is the guy who, who has it all, all. And apparently it's not enough. Um, he's a man who is known for his piety. And that's not enough to slam the brakes on. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, who's, um, I recommend his commentaries on Old Testament books because he's a scholar who writes like a preacher, and so he's great to read. And I'll just read this final quote as we conclude this part of what I want to say. If you begin to say, oh, but I could never, then you have already taken the first step in your fall. Don't ever be surprised at what you are capable of. And it's with that sentiment that I want to leave you to reflect perhaps a little more among the guys you're sitting near, maybe four or five of you around little bits of these tables, on those questions one, two, three, four. How does David fail to protect himself from sexual temptation? What features of David's adultery make his actions particularly wicked? How does the text characterize the reality of his relationship with Bathsheba? What happens when he attempts to cover up what he's done? Reflect a bit on those, perhaps. And then the discussion question, what practical strategies could we put in place to help ourselves resist similar temptations? Now, I have some thoughts I'd love to share with you. I want to get Pastor Shaw up here, and we'll get a couple of microphones, and we'll talk about those things. Um, but I want to leave you guys to talk together about what we've looked at so far. Okay, guys. So if I can um, risk interrupting what I know, because I've listened into at least one of them extensively and fragments of the others are productive and fruitful conversations, I want to share a couple of thoughts with you. Um, uh, and I want to also, Pastor Shaw, we talked about a couple of things yesterday. If you want to join me here, I'm also conscious, Pastor Neil and Mr. Capone, uh, you might have things you want to throw in here. And, and anybody else who's got any particular insightful comments that have come out of the discussions around your tables. Let me just say, though, um, uh, one thing which I want to encourage you to uh, take action on. Um, it's obvious from the text, and we were talking about this in the group of guys I was with over there, that, that David's sin in this instance, it's, it doesn't begin with him having sex with Bathsheba, right? It begins like a way, way back. And it's, it's related to the other wives. It's related to why is he, Justin made the point, why, what's he doing not working on the day when he should be working? In the uh, fifth comma, uh, fourth commandment, the six days you shall labor is as important as the se seventh is a Sabbath. And he's asleep on his couch in the middle of the afternoon. And then he wakes up and then he sees, you know, everything is dysfunctional about that. And it speaks to this issue of taking precautions earlier. Now, we're in a world where you don't have to go up onto your rooftop to see a beautiful woman. Uh, you've got a whole pocket full. And I'm increasingly receiving uh, requests from guys for accountability with some software for this phone that, to, to help them not to stumble. Now... The way that software works spiritually, it's very important to understand. What it does is to bring into the moment of weakness and temptation the experience that 
you know you will have when you have to tell your wife or your mum or your mother-in-law or your pastor. Right? So it puts the brakes on at the moment of weakness because you know you're going to have to have that conversation with somebody. Now, those brakes are most effective when they've never had to be used. Let me put it crudely. If you come to your pastor and you say, listen, I've been viewing pornography every day for the last five years, and then we set up this software, and then I get a notification on day one saying, you better check this out. That doesn't really act as such a strong disincentive to you. Software like that is about 89 or 90% effective in reducing pornography consumption. Uh, but where it works best is with men who have never viewed pornography. Because the thought of having to say to your mother or your mother-in-law or your wife the first time is far more horrifying than having to say, oh, yeah, I did it again, right? So I want to encourage you. If, if you were to come to me and say, hey, pastor, I want to spend $100 a year putting up some fences around my moments of weakness, I... I no longer make any assumptions about what your previous habits have been. I just think you're being a very wise man, right? If you've never viewed porn in your life and you say, I want to spend $100 a year to make it less likely that I ever will, I think that's very wise. Yeah? I mentioned in our household, um, we've had this up and running for years now. We started with Covenant Eyes in the past. We now switched to another one called Ever Accountable. I'm not a spokesman for either. There's a gazillion different platforms out there on different machines. So, but I encourage you, um, please don't think this has never been a problem for me. I don't need to do anything. Like, I've never had a really serious car crash, but I always wear a seatbelt. So, um, Pastor Shaw, you had some thoughts. You want to throw anything in here? Yeah. Um, actually, I'm glad we're just bringing this to pornography and even, you know, phones and what, what we have access to because I, I think that this passage we read can really be reduced down to, um, you know, leering, leering at women, right? And it's an example of how it can ruin your life, right? And we all know, we all know that it can lead to great sin. It is great sin, of course but it can even lead to greater and greater sin. And so I think um, it's something that sin is crouching at our door and, mm -hmm. and we must master it. And we have, we have one another, uh, we have the church, we have the Lord Jesus who has the victory over sin. So let's, let's use those tools that we have. And the one thing we don't have is excuses. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, there were some great conversations going on. Were there any fresh insights or particularly practical insights that anybody wanted to throw into the mix for all of us? We, we've got just a couple minutes left, um, but I don't want to miss out any of those. Um, so, uh, yeah, Mr. Sutherland, I think um, uh, Mr. Morrison, Preston, you had some thoughts as well. So, Jonathan, yeah. We, we talked about how Christians, you know, you, you mentioned that the church, or we the church to ever be like the nation. Right, know, right. But how high of a standard we're held to. And, yes. Um, talking about fleeing, fleeing evil, staying from all forms of evil, but Christ, you know, says in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, even looking at a woman, yes. you committed adultery in your heart. Yeah. Um, 
that's that is clearly that God living like Christ is to live at a very high standard, and it's, mm. but it's not impossible. Right, it's, right, right. Yeah. Christ gives us the Holy Spirit. Christ yes, gives that's us right. Strength to, to resist the devil directly, as Christ did. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's not impossible, and wonderfully. Um, uh, well, I can tell you just from uh, pastoral experience, I've seen wonderful progress in this area. Uh, I'm, I'm really proud of those men who come to me when they've got a problem of this kind. Pastor Neil has been in the game for longer than me. He's had more of the same. And you know, the Lord bless you when you man up and say, I need to do better than this. Help me out here, Pastor. Or just to the guy sitting opposite you. You know, we don't have to be the, yeah. we don't, we're not the only guys in the room who can help with this. Um, Preston, you want something for us? Yeah, then Drew. I found it extremely effective um, a, bit of, uh, a men's society. Um, and we do everything in a, in a manner of we have intentionally set accountability brothers, accountability partners, um, to have that relationship, to have that nurtured in a way where when we're slacking in areas when, when I, I share my calendar with him, he shares his calendar with me, and likewise for many others. Um, because to, to go back in what happened with David, it wasn't just, it didn't start at the temptation with Bathsheba and him blazing around his house in the afternoon. Um, it probably started before that when he decided he wasn't going to go to war. And if there had been healthier accountability with his mighty men around him, they would have rebuked him for, why are you not coming out with us? <laughs> uh, so I think we can set uh, we can set accountability brother in our own lives. Yeah. I've never found that effective when in my youth. Although my father tried to be that for me, there was too much, uh, he cared too much for me to really hold my feet to the fire. Uh, so in, in our organization, um, it's called the Men of War Society, which from Exodus 15 3, and we intentionally uh, select accountability brothers who uh, know us but are not so friendly with us, so many connections. Uh, this guy's literally my brother, like in, in blood. There's not that much connection that there is also a hindrance to actually say, listen, you need to get your act together. Um, and because of that, I've helped him in moments of temptation where he uh, was having trouble in his marriage. We worked through some of those hard issues and nothing ever came. That's great, that's great. But something absolutely could have had we not done. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Thank you, Preston. Uh, Mr. Trammell, yes, sir. Yeah, I think it's kind of along the same lines. And it, so, like, ever accountable or the phone accountability is one small piece of it. But yeah. it's, to me, the biggest piece is just like an open life, a life lived in the light versus. A secret life because mm. like I've known people that you learn years later that they were kind of like trying to battle pornography in secret for years and it's like it, it just doesn't mm -hmm. work you're never going to get there in secret it's a uh, it's confession you know like God tells us to confess for a reason so we confess to the person we've sinned against and then accountability both with your wife or yeah. the pastor and so on so thank you yeah um, I wanted to, just a thought for you, um, Pastor Shaw. Another element missing from this narrative of David is his wives. Um, and of course he has, 
six or seven wives or consorts, which isn't exactly an ideal situation. But let's imagine a situation where he, you know, Abigail, the uh, the widow of Nabal, is just one wife, beautiful, shrewd, intelligent, lovely lady. Imagine that he just was married to her, and, but she's not here. And that speaks to me about something else he's missing. He's not cultivating the relationship with his wife that would spare him from some of these temptations. You got any thoughts on that? Yeah, spend, spend time with your wife. I mean, that, you know, yeah, you... Um, it, it, I think it becomes a lot easier to fall into the temptation of pornography, obviously, in the fair, uh, if you are neglecting your wife. Mm. And so be pursuing your wife, be wooing your Be romantic. Wife. Right. right. Be wooing her, be dating her, be loving her. Um, I did, I, you know, we're probably past the hour already, right. so I, I did want to offer this too. Let's not leave it here. This is not to cheapen the sin, but this is not the end of the story, right? And I say this because I know there are guys in here who are struggling with this, right? So um, this is not the end of the story. <laughs> Psalm 51 is the beginning of the result of this. And uh, even beyond Psalm 51, it's God who um, does restore David, mm-hmm. not without consequences. And that's what I meant by you can ruin your life. I mean. He, his life was never the same after this. We all know that, but uh, that is not to say he wasn't fully forgiven and mm. restored to the Lord. So yeah, yeah. know that. Know that even if you have done things that you regret greatly, that you, you can find forgiveness in yes. Christ. Yeah. Let's make this actionable in a couple of ways. So the guys who you're sitting opposite from, we'll have a few minutes if you want to hang out here, just chat with them. I've been really encouraged just this last week to see three guys in the church, um, well, one guy going to two other men and saying, hey, listen, um, I have to travel on business occasionally. Um, I, I've, I'm going to put these things in place to protect myself from temptation. I'm going to be texting you every 24 hours. Can you pray for me? Can you beat the living daylights out of me if I come back and have to confess something to you? Um, I think they probably would. <laughs> so there's that. Also, what I said before about um, I'm not making any assumptions about anybody. So if you were to email Pastor Neil or Pastor Shaw or me this afternoon or in 20 minutes' time and say, hey, listen, I, I, I'd love some accountability in this area. I'm not making any assumptions except that a man who says that, I think, good idea. Uh, let's, let's do that. If you've never been troubled by pornography or lust in any serious way in the past, let's, not, let's keep it that way. Let's have a church full of guys who are... Like Joseph in the book of Genesis, like the only man who's sexually pure in the book of Genesis, and he's the hero. So God saves Israel through him. Yeah, a church full of people like that is ready to take on the chaos out there. All right? Anything else, my friend? No, I'm, I'll say something about uh, anybody who wants to work at the Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> 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 Careful. All right. Um, pa- Pastor Neil, um, anything you want to throw in here? And, um, Mr. Capone? Thank you, sir. All right. All right, let me pray, and then we'll move on. Merciful Father, we ask for your help. Um, We're we're accustomed to looking at David as um, a tremendous forefather in the faith, and indeed he was. And that such a man could fall and sin like this is salutary indeed. Would you please protect us from every treacherous step along that slippery road? We pray that 
you would place in our hearts, even now, the, the conviction to do whatever is necessary to take the steps to protect ourselves from this kind of ruinous temptation, that our wives and children and grandchildren and brothers and sisters in Christ in the future may have cause to thank you for the work that you've done in us this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name.